my oldest son, William, was given a series of children's books this Christmas, which has him determining how he'd like the story to go, the direction of it. He gets to decide the plot, and then based on some series of questions at the end of the chapter, he gets to decide where the plot goes next or where the story ends. So one of the books we read was based on Uncle Sai from the television show Duck Dynasty. The idea is that Uncle Sai wants to be an astronaut and to explore space, and you get to choose what he gets to do as he explores deep space. So we read the first page about Uncle Sai, and he's ready for blastoff, sitting in the capsule, and the question is, do you want to hit the launch button and send Sai into outer space, or do you want to hit the abort button? William thought about it, and he said, let's abort the mission. The actual question is, do you decide to maybe hold off on spending time in space? He says, let's hold off. So then it directs us to the very last page of the book, the last chapter, towards the last sentence, and says, maybe next time we'll go into outer space. The end. Hey, at this pace, we got 50 volumes we can finish up in about one evening. This is great work. He thinks he's the master. He's like, I've read every book in my library right here, if this is the way you're going to read them. But wouldn't that be great if that's how life worked out for us? That you just kind of get to choose the plot and choose the ending and choose how the story goes. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be great to be able to choose your own adventure in life? But that's just not the way it is. We've lived long enough. We have experienced enough about life to know that we don't get to make all the choices. That is a matter of fact. A lot of choices are made on our behalf for us. Somebody else has already made the choice. And because of that, I want to introduce you to a great piece of wisdom that you may know, but just may need to be reminded of. That life is not as much about action as life is about reaction. It's not about what you're doing. It's about what you're going to do in the midst of your circumstances as you climb through your adversity. We don't get the benefit of determining our own destiny or, or choosing our own circumstances. We, we can do very little to avoid adversity in life. And I think some of you know how quickly uh, you, you don't get to choose your own adventure in this world. You, you didn't get to choose your parents. You didn't get to choose your household. You didn't get to choose your siblings. You didn't choose to have the mom that's on meth or the dad that is on drugs. For many in this room, if we were to choose our own destiny to write our own story, it would turn out much differently and look in the past much differently than how it had looked. In Genesis chapter 37, we're introduced to a man who didn't get to choose his own adventure. I mean, Joseph, in his life, took so many twists, it took so many turns, it it had a lot of curveballs, and it reminds you maybe more of a soap opera than it does maybe a Bible story. But the story is true. Not only is it true to be found in scripture it's true because it is an ancient parable in egyptian history as well and did you know that more attention is focused and fixated on the person of joseph in the book of genesis than any other figure that's there Uh, just about half of the book of genesis is is fixated on joseph and his story and let me tell you a reason why we're studying him and why he is a hero of the faith it's because as you read joseph's story There is no sin, there is no failure, there is no mistake that we are even told about as he faced unprecedented adversity in his life. That doesn't mean that Joseph was sinless, but what it does mean, compared to all those men that were around him in his day, he looked pretty spotless as he rose up to the standards to live by God. Let me give you some background on who this guy is. This is is Abraham's great-grandson. 
Abraham is an illustration that we saw uh, last week of the principles of faith. His his grandfather, Joseph's grandfather, is Isaac. Isaac is an illustration of the perception of faith. His father is Jacob, and Jacob is an illustration of persistence in faith. And here we are with Joseph, and he's an illustration of practiced faith. He lives his faith out like none other of those other forefathers ever did. Because despite the plight that he finds himself in, or the unfairness of the world that has just thrown him in a hole of despair, his faith in God does not swerve, even though his life takes a curve. He stays steady, even though he is unsure of what is the next step in his life. Joseph is the first son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rebekah. I say favorite because uh, Jacob had four wives, and Jacob had a favorite wife. Rebekah was his favorite, and Rebekah's firstborn son was Joseph. And because Rebekah was Jacob's favorite, Joseph just happened to be Jacob's favorite son, although he was born 11th in the line of 12. And at this time, when we see Joseph in this story, he has yet to have another baby brother, so Joseph is the baby of all the brothers. And here he is when we're introduced to him at the age of 17 years old. And the story begins quickly with a dream that he has. And he encounters disappointment right off of the bat. At this young age, he is given this fancy coat. It's kind of like that dream coat that Donny Osmond used to wear back in Joseph and the Amazing Colored Technicoat. And here he is with a placement that's put on his life, a placard that basically just says, Daddy's favorite son. But beyond that, while all of his brothers are in the field taking care of the family sheep, Here's Joseph. He's not in the field. He doesn't have calloused hands. He is a manager. Joseph is the executor. He is the executive of his family business. And so his brothers are tending the sheep. They smell like sheep. They're in the fields. They're under the heat of the day and the cool of the night. And Joseph, Joseph's at the house just managing the books and making sure that they're doing their job. So he has a fancy coat that says, I'm dad's favorite. He's got a pretty cush job, which should be the oldest son's job. But since he's the favorite, it's his job. And then he has this dream. And it's really this dream that God laid on his heart that gets him into trouble. And Joseph wakes up one morning after this dream. This dream is this bizarre dream. And and it just like dreams are bizarre, aren't they? But he's able to interpret this dream. His father is the sun. His mother is the moon. His, His brothers are these stalks of grain. And everything bows down to him. His father, his mother, and his brothers. And so one day over a bowl of Cheerios in the morning, he says, hey, I gotta tell you about this dream I just had. And he says, look, mom and dad and you all are gonna bow down to me one day. Now, do you think that put him on the top of the list for favorite brothers in the family? And they head off to the field, and they go about their day's work, and Joseph comes about, and he's just crossing over probably a hill. They see him heading towards towards where they're at, tending these sheep, and they, they come up with a sinister plot because their hatred for them had grown over this time. This is where we see the plot kind of get thick. Genesis chapter 37, let's look at verse 19. They say, here comes that dreamer. Verse 20, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see 
what comes of his dream. Okay, I'm not an attorney. I, I don't know much about the law when it comes to murder, but I'm pretty sure that if these guys were to be convicted, an attorney, a prosecuting attorney could convict these guys of premeditated murder, don't you think? This is premeditation right here. And it goes on to say that one of the older brothers, older brothers speaks up, a guy by the name of Judah, and he says to the rest of his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him instead. This is like the entrepreneur of the family. He's like, no, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. We can make a dime off this brother of ours. And we'll sell him to the Ishmaelites. Maybe that has a tinge, a ring to it. The Ishmaelites, just a side, little side teaching here. The Ishmaelites, this is family relation to these guys. The Ishmaelites are distant relatives. This was um, their grandfather's brother's side of the family, Ishmael's side of the family. They're not that far removed. And maybe their thinking is, we'll just sell Joseph off to our other side of the family. See, when you put it in those terms, it doesn't sound that bad, does it? I mean, it sounds bad you're selling off your brother, but at least you're selling them to family, you know? And they decide, let's do that. So the Ishmaelites are passing by, and it's this group of guys that are merchants. And it says, let's hand them over to him yeah, he's our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. And they all kind of agree. So they kidnap him and they throw him into this, this water well that's dried up, a cistern. It's basically a pit in the ground. And they think, we'll get rid of our brother. We'll sell him to these traders, these merchants. And then we'll feel fine about it because it's kind of like family that we're selling it to. And then we'll go and we'll come up with a way to tell our dad what had happened. Stop for a moment. These guys hate Joseph so much, they don't care what happens to him physically. They only care about what their dad thinks. Just like kids that are in trouble, right? What are we going to tell mom and dad? So they come up with this whopper of a tale. And here's what it says in verse uh, 31 of chapter 37. They got Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat. So they're, they're killing something to cover over their sin. Does that sound familiar? Killing something to cover sin? They slaughter a goat, they dip the robe in blood, they took the ornate robe to their father and said, hey, we, we found this. <laughs> yeah, right you did. Examine it and see whether it's your son's robe. Now, pay attention to how they speak here because they are just sly and cunning enough not to totally lie to their father, but let their father believe something different than what actually took place look joseph grew up in dysfunctional family he grew up with lies he grew up with deceit and jacob jacob was the number one schemer of that family so dad is getting what he's always given fathers listen to this what comes around goes around you think your lies you think your mischief you think your hidden sins are not going to be find out believe me what comes around it oftentimes goes around jacob is getting a little bit of medicine that he's been handing out to his kids lies and deceit have plagued this family and they're continuing to snowball down the hill to the point of covering over their son, their brother's kidnapping he recognizes it in verse 33 he says this is my son's robe and and some ferocious wild animal must have tore him apart. And Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth. And he mourned for his son. That was a, a traditional ancient way of grieving that process. Verse 35, all of his sons and daughters came to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I'm going to continue to mourn until I join my son 
in the grave and his father wept for him. That's, that's a parent's way of saying, I'm never going to get over the death of my son. And if any father or mother has ever buried a son or daughter, that shouldn't happen. We know that just, it's not the way that this world should work. You know that you never get over death. You never get over losing someone whom you are so close to and who you love so much. And Jacob just flat out says it. I'm never going to get over this. This hurts me and wounds me this deep. And Joseph, Joseph didn't think this is how his life would turn out. He dreamed of being a place in honor. Now he is in an absolute horror of a nightmare story. He is sold to an Egyptian named Potiphar. And Joseph probably was one of hundreds of slaves that was put on the auction block and who Potiphar, this man of nobility, this rich man, bought and purchased. He was a high-ranking official in the Egyptian government. His title was captain of the guard, which means maybe he was like a part of the secret service for the, the king who was called Pharaoh. He was the one that was like second or third in charge of all of Egypt. And while Joseph is just doing these menial tasks around Potiphar's palace, something gets Potiphar to set his eyes on Joseph and to pay attention to him. He's not a standout amongst the slaves in the sense that he's doing a better job, a greater job. But God is with him as he does the job. Notice how Potiphar takes notice. Go to Genesis 39. And look at verse 2 with me. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Hold up. In this big story, four times that phrase is mentioned. The Lord is with Joseph. You remember that in your story. When curveballs come. When disappointment begins to spoil dreams. The Lord is with you. And he lived in the house of this Egyptian master, verse 3, chapter 39. When his master saw the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Do you see what's going on here? From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of Egypt because of Joseph. And the blessings of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and the field. Doesn't it make sense that somebody that was an executor, an executive of the family business that knew how to run things, would be ultimately put in charge of things, even though he was a slave? I mean, there was some administration skills here that God had given this guy, some talents that obviously were being shown brightly, and Potiphar recognized him and said, I want that guy in charge of my household. So Potiphar, it says in verse 6, left everything he had under Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He didn't concern himself with anything. And the text says the only thing he concerned himself was what, with what he ate. That was it, with what went in his own mouth. But everything else on the exterior, Joseph had control of. So here's Joseph, riches to rags to riches story, right? Let's close the book. Let's just walk away from the story here because that's a good story. That's how you'd want to see your life turn out. Yeah, I had some lumps. I took some lumps. But I climbed back up to the top and I reached the pinnacle of success at least as far as success could take me as a slave. Now, if you want to end there, shut the book. But if you want to see how this takes a turn for the worse, turn with me 
to Genesis 39 and look at the second part of verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. I don't think it gets much more direct than that. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owes, owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. Notice he recognizes his authority. Good leaders recognize and understand their authority. My master was withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Isn't that interesting? Not, how could I ruin what I have here? I'm in charge of it. Not, how could I dare go against my master's authority that he's put in my life? No, how dare I go against the highest authority? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, come to bed with me, Joseph. He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Okay, this guy wasn't prepared for this. This temptation was absolutely inescapable. Every single day her request fell upon his ear and she pursued Joseph relentlessly. And this is where I think, I think this guy Joseph, this man Joseph, does so much better than this guy Matt. Here he is with all this bombardment of temptation and all this disappointment in his life. And those two things together don't make for a good recipe. Disappointment and temptation. A lot of us in this room, when disappointed with life or disappointed with the way our faith is going or disappointed in what we think God should have done but didn't do, we kind of check out and say, our sin is justified here. When your dreams are crushed, when life throws you an unexpected curve your way, do you remain faithful like Joseph? Or do you say, my dreams are crushed, I've got disappointment I gave God a chance. He didn't come through, so I'm going to do what I want to do. So a wife. A wife can't remember the last time she was listened to by her husband. She can't even recall the last time that her husband uh, touched her affectionately or even honored her. And so now somehow she feels like it's okay to flirt at the office or to reconnect with an old boyfriend on Facebook. Or... A wife makes intimacy sound like a chore, so her husband now feels justified to go to the websites. I mean, after all, he's got needs too. Or a single person is, is looking for Mr. or Mrs. Right, and, and they've tried to do it God's way and, and to be obedient to God and, and wait towards marriage, but they're finding that every single person they have, they have dated wants intimacy, sex first, and then they want marriage later. And now they're thinking, you know what? God's never sent to me Mr. or Mrs. Right. I maybe need to stop dating the way God wants me to date and start dating the way in which it seems culturally acceptable to date. And so they change their methods of how they're going to find a spouse. Because after all, God didn't come through for me. And I'm a little, I'm a little upset by that. And I'm disappointed. And those two things make a recipe for disaster. 
You know the Apostle Paul gave the advice to a young man that was struggling in a sensual society? Here's what he said. He said, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living. Run from this. This is what Joseph did. He literally had to get out of his own cloak, his own robe to escape her. She was holding on to his, his coat, and he had to run away from it. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Catch this. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Enjoy the company of like believers who have your soul in mind. Run. Run away from temptation. And now Joseph's story is not going any way in which he would have authored it. He would have never have written, I want to be a slave someday. Because what happens next to him is just tragic for standing up for his beliefs and being a man who had higher standards. He's thrown into prison because he's falsely accused of rape. Potiphar's wife says, look, Obviously, he doesn't want anything to do with me, and so I don't want anything to do with him. And since I have some authority and I have some, some voice here, I'm going I'm to tell a story on him. And I'm going to say that he tried to rape me, and immediately he's thrown into prison. From riches to rags to riches to rags. From prominence to pit. From palace to prison. but he's faithful to God. And if there's anything that you catch in all of this sermon and all about Joseph's life, is regardless of the adversity, the circumstances, the pit or the prison, the palace or the prominence, Joseph is deeply committed to the Lord. It's as if he understands sovereignty better than anybody else in all of the Bible. Sovereignty of God that God works on a higher dimension, a different plane. He's not restricted to the limits of this world. He can do what he wants to do for the greater good at any time he wants to do it. And that God has pinned a story for his life. And he's willing to ride the wave of whatever it is that God is sending him towards. And he remains faithful. And he finds himself in the prison. Friends, what do you do when disappointment comes? Where is God in disappointment? Have you ever asked that question? When a normal doctor's visit all of a sudden turns into cancer? Or a typical Friday becomes the day of your firing? Where's God in that? Where's God in the disappointments when the dreams are broken? And and like like a switch, it just happens. You know, you don't expect to walk in Friday only to find yourself without a job on Monday. It's like a switch when circumstances and adversity and trials come our way and Joseph's dreams completely interrupted and it is taking the most unexpected twists and and he's saying, I lived right by God. I did the right thing here. I fleed temptation and now I'm in trouble for it. Every test that was sent Joseph's way, he passed. Every problem, Joseph proved faithful so God prospered him and for joseph a new chapter begins a new chapter that he wouldn't have written for himself but it's a chapter now as a prisoner in another pit the bible says in genesis chapter 39 in the second half of verse 20 but while joseph was there in prison verse 21 the lord 
was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. When he was a slave, God was with him. When he was in a place of prominence, God was with him. When he was in the prison, God never abandoned him. And Joseph says, I am never going to abandon God, whether I'm in the palace or I'm in the pit. Where's God in our disappointments? He's with us. In a dark and damp cellar in Cologne, Germany, where thousands of Jews once hid from Nazi torment, there was an inscription, there still is an inscription, that was discovered not long after World War II had ended. And scrawled across the stone wall by an anonymous author that was probably more than likely killed were these words. I believe in the sun when it doesn't shine. I believe in love even though I don't feel it. I believe in God even when he is silent. Friends, in your chapter of your story right now, you may find that God is silent. But like Joseph and his story, you can be resting assured that he is sovereign even though he is silent and that he is with you. Regardless of if you're in the palace or the pit, prominence or prison. So one night, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has this incredible dream that troubled him. He couldn't make sense of it. So he asked all the wisest men in the country, can you make sense of the dream? And they couldn't. So the cupbearer, the cupbearer who was a prison mate of Joseph for some time, is back into his old position where he's testing the food for the king to make sure the king doesn't die from being poisoned. And the cupbearer happens to hear about the plight, and he says, look, there was a guy that I was in prison with. He knew how to interpret some dreams. God's really placed his hand upon him. You need to call him. And so Pharaoh calls up Joseph out of the prison and puts him back into a position. So he has Pharaoh's ear, and he says, make sense of the dream. And Joseph perfectly makes sense of the dream. And the dream is kind of an obscure dream, but what it comes down to is Joseph interprets it as saying there's going to be some some good years where there's going to be a lot of crop, and then there's going to be seven bad years where we're not going to get anything, so we better start storing up now for those bad years that are to come because a famine's coming. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 38, the Pharaoh, after he looked at all of his advisors, he says, He says, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Check that out, right? Isn't that a great, isn't that a great compliment? That is the Spirit of God. This guy embodies who God is, the, the real God, not the sun God that we've been worshiping or these other false gods. This is, this is a guy that really embodies the true God. Verse 39 of Genesis 41. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. Verse 40, you shall be in charge of my palace. Wow, he's back at the top again. And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with the respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So here Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. The only one who's higher than is the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And even the Pharaoh is, is readily admitting, you're smarter and more brilliant than I am. And the only thing why I have more authority of you is because I was born into royalty but you're really the guy that knows how to work this thing out. So Joseph, prominence to pit, to a palace, back to prison, and then where? Prime minister. This is an incredible story, but Joseph would have never written it because you would have never written a story like that with such adversity, with such circumstances, with such hardship, with such pain, would you? 
God was preparing Joseph for something important. God wants to populate a nation. This is the this is strange nature of God. He wants to populate a nation. So who did he use? Last week we found this out. He used a guy named Abraham and his wife Sarah. This elderly, uh, infertile couple. He says, that's who I want to use. God doesn't make sense, does he? He wants to... He wants to be able to save his people from an oncoming famine that he knows is going to happen. Decades in advance, God knows. And so he begins this journey for Joseph, who has the administration skills, off-the-chart administrator. He has a heart for God's people. No way would Joseph ever become prime minister of Egypt. He couldn't have applied for it. He's not an Egyptian. He couldn't have just received it. He would have never been around Pharaoh before. But God got him an audience with Pharaoh, the king. Strange, strange route to get there. And through the ups and downs and through the trials and through the triumphs, God was remaking a man that was perfect for the moment. So Joseph executes this plan. This plan to make sure that Egypt has enough food. The plan is pretty simple. We're going to grow crops like crazy for seven years. This is the interpretation that God put into his, his dream. And we're going to build silos and we're going we're to keep all this food and this grain. And then when the seven years of famine come, we're going to distribute it and we're, we're going to keep track of it. And we're going to make sure that we don't run out of food during the famine. So famine strikes and there's a ton of food and Joseph's in charge of the distribution. And now the story cuts back to his family, his blood. It goes back and it shoots back to the household now of Jacob and Rebekah and his other wives and his children. And there's a new son that's been born, Benjamin, a baby. And, 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 and now they have wealth, they have uh, some prosperity, but here's what they don't have. They don't have any food. <laughs> so... So the older boys get together and they say, I heard that Egypt has a lot of food. They've, they've put it away. They've kind of kept the stockpile of it. And if we just go there, maybe they'll, they'll show some grace to us and we can have some food that they've put away for themselves. And now 22 years have passed since Joseph's ever seen hide or hair of anybody of his family, any blood in his life. And his brothers find themselves in need of food. And who do you think is holding the bread? Joseph. And you remember that dream that he had about the wheat bowing down to him and the sun and the moon bowing down, his mom and dad and, and his brothers bowing down? When they come and they meet 39-year-old Joseph, they don't recognize him. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He's speaking middle Egyptian language. They don't have a clue this is their brother. And the first thing they do before him is bow down. I think that's great. I think it's great because God put him in that position and Joseph would have never written that for himself. And so Joseph, well, he reveals himself, snaps a finger and puts them all to death. No, he doesn't. That's not how the story goes. That's how my story would go because I'd be vengeful. I'd be upset. I would look at my brothers and say, what were you thinking? But that's not how Joseph sees it. That's not even what Joseph was thinking at all. Joseph, his heart has been molded 
Time has tamed his revenge. He doesn't want revenge at all, and so he collects his brothers together, still not revealing himself, and he puts them through a series of tests that for you, you might find a little bit awkward to read about, but the tests have to do with this. Number one, do they have character after God's heart? That's one of the tests. Number two, do they have forgiveness in their heart for what they did to Joseph? Number three, do they have compassion for their father. They pass every single test of character and compassion and forgiveness. And finally, Joseph can't hold it back anymore and he reveals himself to him in Genesis chapter 45. Look at verse one. It says, Then Joseph then Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants. So all these people around him and then he just, he just cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was, there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and and Pharaoh's household heard about it. This is verse 3 of Genesis 45. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers, they weren't able to answer him. (laughs) They were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they'd done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph. I'm the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Listen to this voice of maturity. For selling me here because it was to save the lives that God sent me ahead of you. God did this. It's not the story I would have chosen for myself. It's not the route. It's not the pick your own adventure I would have picked for myself. But this is what God did. And I remained faithful to God. Regardless if I was in the palace or the pit, regardless if it was, I remained faithful to God. I knew God had a plan. And here's what he tells them. This isn't the way I would have wrote my story. I had different ideas, guys. But don't be angry with yourself because God used this to do incredible, unexpected, unimaginable things in my life. In Genesis chapter 50, the very end chapter of the book of Genesis, here's how Genesis finishes up with Joseph looking at his brothers and and they're they're still a little bit on edge. Like, is he going to kill me one day? I mean, is this just like, is he putting on a smile and going to shove the knife in my back later? He says, you guys, you guys intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. You guys intended evil in my life. God intended good in my life to accomplish what is being done. The saving of many lives. Guys, get over what you did to me because I'm so over it because God had something so much better planned and I stayed faithful to him through the thick and through the thin. And Joseph didn't know that when he was in the pit. Joseph didn't know that when he was in the palace. Joseph didn't know that when he was in prison. Joseph didn't understand that till he was later older as a prime minister that everything that happened in his life Evil was surrounding it, but God was doing something good through it. And this is what God does. God redeems his people. God redeems stories. He takes broken bits of your life and he's able and manages to re-put them back together. He can redeem your story. Your story's not too broken. Your life's not too wounded. It's never too late. He can fix things. He takes all these broken things we have, all these ashes of our life, and he takes them and he turns them into beauty. He takes the disgraced and he offers them grace. Friends, the story of Joseph teaches me God is faithful and that we should be trusting of this sovereign God.
He may be silent. And life may seem unfair. You may be thinking you're getting a raw deal here. But you know, God promises in the end that all things are going to work together for the good of those who love Him. Isaiah 43.2 reads, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. That is a poetic, metaphorical way to say, God's going to be with you. God doesn't say you'll never have a flood. He says, metaphorically, when the flood comes, it's not going to drown you. God doesn't say you'll never have a fire. He says, when the fire comes, I'm going to see to it that you don't get burned. I mean, through it all, can we learn to trust in our story? In the midst of disappointments, when we have different dreams, believing somehow that God is working this out for the good of those who love him. Psalm 119, 71 reads, It was good for me to be afflicted. That's crazy thinking. I mean, no one in our world, really, outside of faith, would think this way. It's good for me to be afflicted, bring on the suffering, so that I might learn your decrees. It brings me closer to the Lord. Robert Browning Hamilton wrote, I walked a mile with pleasure, and she chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser, for she had nothing to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and near a word, she said, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. When sorrow comes, you be faithful. Remember, there's no victory without a battle. There is no crown without a cross. There is no resurrection without a death. There is no rainbow without a storm. There is no empty tomb without a Calvary. There is no sunrise without a night. There is no solution unless there's a problem. And there is no perseverance unless there's hardship. God can restore your life. Through Jesus Christ, not wanting to take your old self, but turn you into something new, remade in His image.